Hello and welcome to the 51st episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them about their star industry, what the influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Seven Dragon Saga by Tactical Simulations Interactive. Davids, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm uh, David Shelley. I'm the lead designer and producer on Seven Dragon Saga here at TSI. Um, we're basically a successor to the old SSI, which is where I got my start. And uh, we've been, basically been seeing the interest in nostalgia games in recent years and decided to... Uh, bring some of the old members back together again and uh, put together a game that uh, would be inspired by our initial work. And I'm David Klein, president of TSI. I had approached David and some of his colleagues about the idea of rebooting the company, being a huge fan of RPGs myself, and really looking for an old school tactical experience where you could create and control all six characters. I'm daily more responsible for the operations side and assisting David where he needs it in terms of production resources. But really, we've been able to adapt our own system that David and Keith Brewers created as a pen and paper system, and we're excited to bring that to the PC. Fantastic. So before we go delving in detail about Seven Dragons Saga, I know that we'll be sprinkling the first half about that game because that's what we're really here to talk about. I want to know about about you yourselves and uh, you already hinted well stated actually that you made your start many years ago maybe we can give some years so we can give some idea of the listener of what the pedigree what we're dealing with how long how long ago maybe you don't want to go into years fine <laughs> but i think I, I actually find it fascinating because um as i said to, we were chatting before the show in the uk development of video games was initially the same it started off with pongs like everyone else around the world and then there's this massive schism split because there was a implosion in the u.s of uh, video games where everyone else were going huh really i'm gonna carry on making games and that's what happened um but tell us what what how did you 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 start what was your start well um back in the 80s um i got my start i was um doing um, my college thing and uh, trying to decide what I was going to do with my life. Right. And uh, I mentioned to my then wife, uh, I really don't know what I want to do. If I could only make a, a living doing games. Uh, what did you, you know, major I, in university? I'm just curious. Uh, well, I, I began in physics because my father was a physicist over at Lockheed. And uh, right. I found that kind of um, esoteric at some point. Uh, I explored various options and eventually graduated with a degree in earth science. Okay, so, right. Absolutely nothing directly related to uh, games, but then again, the um, computer and video games were sort of just uh, in their infancy then. So, yeah, uh, courses on video game development didn't yet exist back then. They do now. That's right. <laughs> and computer science stuff was mostly on the big Yes, big mainframes uh, that were playing Space Wars. So. Um, <laughs> But I'd always been interested in games because um, I'd always been a tabletop player, uh, mm-hmm. tabletop RPGs. I have the white box, uh, Dungeons & Dragons set. 
Wow. Yeah. The old Arduin Grimoires with their head pulped and splattered over wide area crits. and uh, Love those. Yeah. Well, actually, um, just as an aside, I mean, listeners of the show know this, but I love telling this story, is that I've actually was given the first edition of, of in, in sort of gold leaf sort of like trim uh, by, by uh, Wizards of the Coast because I entered this competition for uh, a DM. A DM com- in basically a the best DM of that night at, at PAX. And so it was into competition. I came third. It's not bad. Uh, being That's great. Yes, it's hard. And uh, I was, the only reason I'm mentioning this now is I was leafing through this book, as you would, and it's, it's barely decipherable. It's gibberish. <laughs> Honestly, just go and have a look at the original. It's just like, how on earth did we play this back in the day? With, you know, how did they do this? It's gibberish. Whereas you know, now, you know, I've got fifth edition books right, you know, within arm's reach right now, and I'm going to talk about it later in the show. Maybe this is like, good heavens, this is so clear and easy. What is right. this? <laughs> so anyway, yes, I mean, the white box does it explains some things, but it's not balanced. It doesn't have very many rules in its in its pages or anything. So yes, that was the early days when you mm. sort of figured out what you were doing you know on the fly so <laughs> so what specific specific games did you start working in was it did you make your you said you made your start SSI which is an yeah. amazing mm-hmm. amazing launch pad so uh, so what did you start working on there was it on the DM well, stuff um so I started there in 87 I graduated in, in um I started in 86 cuz I graduated in 86 so it was a couple months after I got a call from one of my gaming friends that uh, we have our weekly game with saying they had a QA and playtest position there. So I Ooh. wandered down there and uh, interviewed with the head of R&D there, Chuck Krogel, who's uh, now at Petroglyph these days. Um, and he interviewed for me for a few minutes, then stuck me on a phone, and it rang, and somebody on the other end said, how do you get through the red bleep door? And so... <laughs> Not having played Fantasy Three recently, <laughs> all at that point in time. <laughs> wow! I put, my, <laughs> I put my hand over the receiver and yelled out to the uh, other six members of R and D and uh, got the answer and related on. And that's when I started working at SSI. Wow! I still have my ST version of that game, actually. My entire ST version of Fantasy Three. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was a good game. Uh, yeah, it was a good game. Yeah, we yeah. were. I just had the occasion to talk with Doug Wood of Fantasy just uh, not too long ago, so uh, yeah. he's talking about making a comeback too. So we'll see. Just like listen, it- not talking about Final Fantasy. Okay, it's, it's a <laughs> PH. No. Fan- Never mind. No, it's not Final Fantasy. Not no, Final Fantasy. No, with an, no, with an IE at the end. IE at the end. With a PH at the start. With a PH at the start. <laughs> it had nothing to do with Final Fantasy at all. It was completely yeah. Yes. Anyway, look it up. SSI Fantasy PH IE whatever. Yeah, great, great game. Okay, and that's the and uh, yeah, okay. So yeah, so I mean, I had not done any of the computer or any um, video games up until that point. Uh, it had all been paper and pencil, uh, board games, and that sort of thing. So, but you were still designing. I mean, with- yeah, I, I mean, the first few uh, first few months there, it was uh, you know review of of the games to learn what the heck these things were to play test them. Shard of Spring, the fantasy games, uh, and then uh, was able to start to move into other elements of development. Uh, actually, got to be an artist on Eternal Dagger, uh, do Apple IIe mm. graphics. Back then, we had no art team. 
Uh, nice. So if anyone wanted to do the art, could do it, and it was a very interesting. <laughs> that is challenge. interesting um, because eighty seven, eighty six, eighty eight, very important time because that's when the sixteen bits arrived. Um, because that's when I suspect art teams were needed because that was, you know, you had the Amiga and the ST and the, we already mentioned, right, and the PC, yeah. of course, that although at that time the, those two, the, the Commodore and the Atari machines, actually ahead of the, of the other machines technically. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. And people don't really realize that. I mean, for example, you had Wing Commander on 12 discs on a PC, whereas on the Amiga it was four, right? Right. How? Now, laymen don't understand that is. I know you two know. Uh, <laughs> it's about how the how powerful the Amiga was with regards to streaming graphics and what have you. Uh, believe that's why. How, and the compression routines are much better. All sorts of reasons. But you know, it's it's very it's very interesting time to dive in because that was a that's when the NES was arriving. So it was at, uh, at its zenith, really, wasn't it? Although mm-hmm. we, we in the UK were lovely ignoring it, thanks to Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> Also, the fact that all of our games ran 15% slower than everyone else because of PAL. Uh, yes. And everything had a black border, and it was just horrible. Uh, <laughs> although, you know, it made Mario a lot easier to play. Um, so, yes. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, you, you moved on through, and how long yeah. was that for then? Oh, uh, well, let's see. Essentially, I got to get into design when um, we started to do the Pool of Radiance, which was our first uh, Dungeons and Dragons game. Uh, right. Chuck, our um, head of R&D, was uh, able to uh, get in with the TSR guys and uh, convince them that they should uh, let us uh, bring the Dungeons & Dragons games over and uh, put them on the amazing machines like the Commodore 64. Mm. uh, So at that point, we had to gear up, and so... Uh, design positions opened up as in pure design as opposed to engineers that um, put together what they wanted or we had to hire artists because uh, the art had finally gotten to the point where uh, real artists could make a definite difference. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I worked on the Pool of Radiance. Mm. That was 87, 88, I think. Right. So all yeah. around you had stuff like Ultima popping up, Wizardry, and all sorts. oh yeah, the whole all the big um, classics were yeah. uh, were kicking off around the same time. Wizardry, Might and Magic, yes, uh, Ultima, mm. all of those. So it was a proliferation as the uh, systems got a little bit bigger, and you were able to uh, start to explore the capabilities of what uh, role playing would be. So yeah, taking a lot of the grunt work of rolling those dice and working out your Thacko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good old D&D 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the stupid backward mass that was. Um, that was all taken away. That was one of the strengths of the computing at the time. It's why they flourished. Uh, and I say did and again, but we'll talk about that later on in the show. Um, so I think that's what we've covered where you started your, your, your legacy there and you obviously worked your way through and was it into the early 90s maybe or like uh, yeah 90s? I worked at SSI through 93 right. Uh, right so through all of the gold box titles uh, the Buck Rogers titles uh, and on into Dark Sun yes yes 
which is still a much celebrated uh, environmental world in in D and D. Although they haven't resurrected it, which is kind of weird. They always focus on the Sword Coast. This is cool, but <laughs> yeah, all the forgotten, forgotten realms all the time. Yes, yeah. it's forgotten realms. Like, we haven't forgotten that it's there. It's <laughs> other... Eberron, maybe? No. Okay. Nope. They don't ever doing anything with it anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. But I suppose you could just take that environment and shove it in anything now. That's what people are doing now. Um, so, isn't an old question, well, people think that it's, it's hard to answer, especially developers, because they think, well, what do you mean by this, Chris? But they, well, I'm worded very carefully. So what do you believe are your biggest influences as, as a creator? Now, obviously, you're going to say other games, but what is the other thing that you find yourself orbiting when you're creating and developing something? What do you, do you seem to be returning to? Hmm. <laughs> well, I try to take in stuff from a lot of different... Uh, Areas, of course, so it's a little hard to lock down. I mean, my biggest thing is just try to... I mean, what I came out of college with was the... Uh, I found science was useful for understanding enough to how to build a world, and I wasn't really interested in doing things in a, to a greater fidelity as if I were a, a real geologist or a real physicist, but to understand the basics of that sort of gave me the building pieces for whenever I'm trying to create a world and how to think on that. So for that's, the basis that's, of, that's viable, that's believable that you'd exactly, like. Exactly. Yeah. So why is that peninsula there? Well, <laughs> no, it's, I could go into log. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's an oxbow lake. Please don't. Like, start. <laughs> no, I mean, don't want to be expository on that or you're going to lose your audience. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Oh, there they go. Bye. Never mind. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I always kind of draw back to that. And then I've always been a comic, big comic book fan. And I uh, got into uh, the Japanese anime and manga in the uh, early 90s. Uh, and I think some of that's influenced some of my uh, more recent stuff. And, I just want to find uh, some stuff then. So, <laughs> but, um, no, it's, I'm, I'm joking. But, uh, no, that's interesting because Akira, we have a lot to, to answer for that uh, – extraordinary game of a film and uh that all kicked off in a night i remember that when that happened when suddenly all this strange japanese animation appeared like have you ever seen this no it's all disjointed and weird no try really (laughs) 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 Uh, speaking personally i actually read 2000 ad as a kid uh why wouldn't i i'm british sure and uh i was actually chatting to someone about the differences the key differences between the DC and uh, Marvel comics versus the 2008. I'm not sure if you read 2008. You probably have. I don't know. But I think what, we have. Yeah. Yeah. The difference is that whereas they are constantly rebooting and recycling and rebooting the, the characters in the, the superheroes yep. in the comic books, that doesn't happen in 2008. There's actually a constant story arc that keeps on going and going and going. Quite extraordinary. It's just you know, Judge Dredd just keeps going and going. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just remind it's, me, was Miracle Man two thousand? No, did it? So. Okay, might be wrong, but this character's like Slain, Nemesis, Strontum yep. Dog, um, right? Stuff like that. And like I said, it's just this narrative keeps on going. They don't need to reboot. Just keep going. It just, and someone said to me that really appeals to me. It's probably what I why I latched onto it because it's like, huh. Keep going, going, going. It's like, yeah, I, I, I know where this person started and where they keep going. 
You know, it's a bit like you know these these the the, the graphic novels. So that that's what they have this narrative. You know, The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead is so popular because of this narrative, this constant narrative. They're not they don't have to reboot anything because it's just a uh, some things very very horrible things are happening. Yeah. Anyway, so so the usual stuff then: media, films, yeah. literature, um, comics, of course, and and other and that kind of stuff. Awesome. Now, next question. This one's another tough one to most developers to answer because I don't want to annoy anyone. But who do you admire most in an industry, and do you think, yeah, this, and why? Why is that so? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Told you, I could hear that. Hmm. Don't, don't piss anyone off. Yeah. I'm not who do I say? This. Who do I say? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, a lot of my, you know, sort of meet and deal with on a regular basis. Type Indeed, yeah. So, you know, so, next, <laughs> hear this show, like, you didn't, you know. <laughs> Who do I say that it's my... Yeah, you, you're going to owe a lot of drinks after answering this one. I mean, it can be a company, it can be an idea. I'll take a first pass, because I, I have a special near and dear place in my heart for Lord British. Ultimate 2 is the game yeah. I had purchased. So, for me, seeing how... He's evolved and be able to come full circle to return to the world of Britannia and the Avatar. I think it's tremendous. So yeah. that that's an easy one for me. Yeah, he is, um, lost his way a bit. Literally went off into space. You know, right? <laughs> fine. Yeah, some and, of the MMO stuff was a bit different, but it's great to see him return to his roots. Yeah, I mean, Ultimate Nine. Let's just not like it's like the bad second album. Like, you know, <laughs> no one talks about. We can nine. put some of that on EA, right? Definitely. Why not? Everyone hates them. It's them and, um, it's them and who else? So Activision. That's it. Those two. Everyone hates them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> what an extraordinary thing. I remember back in the day when when EA first came out, and they were meant to be this altruistic, you know, elevating video game developers into this high echelon. And what? <laughs> now look at it. Here's this absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. Here's the free to play game. Actually, it's not free to play at all. It's actually pay to play in the first place. Like, uh. So anyway, um, that was what they did to Dungeon Keeper. Horrible, horrible thing to do. Uh, so yeah. So uh, Mr. Klein, or Mr. Shelley. Sorry, Mr. Shelley. Uh, have you got your? So I told you get mixed up between. Well, two. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'd have to say that um, the folks at uh, back then in the day of, of Microprose with the mm. games they were able to come out with, uh, we had an early shot at uh, Masters of Orion, and they outbid us and put it out. And uh, But they were that able came. to put together. Yeah, Master of Orion. Master of Orion, XCOM, the um, Civilization series, of course, and yeah. so on. So, and uh, the um, F1 games as well with Jeff Cramer. Mm-hmm. They were amazing too. So yeah, oh dear, <laughs> big sigh. But yeah, Microprose, good good call on that. So a final question in the first half, you'll be released here. It's my favourite question, and it's the least difficult should be, but it is my favourite question because it gives you a hint about what you're going to be doing. But we already know that because we're building up to a point. But what are you playing right now? And it can be tabletop as well. It doesn't matter. We just we don't we don't discriminate in, in the sauces. Oh uh, well, on tabletop, uh, basically we've had a a role playing group that we're together pretty much every week for over thirty years. So uh, 
Wow. Were you the player or the DM or both? Were you I'm saying? most often the DM. Uh, I've I know that pain. <laughs> <laughs> in recent uh, weeks, I've managed to slip the noose there and been able to play. But uh, The best DMs play as well. That's what I say. Yes. Because you can't have empathy yeah. then. So. Yeah. So uh, well, we have our own. The Seven Dragons Saga, which we'll be talking about on the computer side soon, is uh, our home system that we uh, work with on tabletop. So it's been around for a while. So we're always playing that. We played through a campaign of 5th edition D&D. The one one they released? The the two hardback books they released, that one? Or is it something you developed yourself, did you say? For which? 5th edition. Fifth edition, yeah, we had the uh, books. Uh, one of oh, our, uh, one of our guys, uh, the um, is over at uh, Cryptic, so he had uh, got early copies of the books because they do the Neverwinter MMO. Oh, of course, yeah. I I pre-ordered mine months, you know, months and months ago, and I got it way earlier than everyone else because you know, I pre-ordered it and I picked it up from a local store that I have. I say local, London local, and. Um, uh, I really enjoyed it. What, what did you think of it? Well, how are you finding well, it? I, I liked it uh, far, far better than the fourth edition. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It also, really... also known as Diablo. <laughs> <laughs> Diablo Do I get more stuff? Yes. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> no, it harkens back to the good 3.5 version, but it's a little smoother and. Uh, not quite as ornate, you know. Uh, Pathfinder is a good game too, but takes a couple hours to build your character. So uh. yeah, that is quite torturous, isn't it? I'm actually run, running a session at the moment over Roll Twenty. Have you heard of that Roll Twenty? Mm-hmm. Sure, I've heard. It's a, yeah, so it's a web-based. But well, you see, the problem is, my friend of mine he he emigrated from the UK to 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 Seattle, but he was part of our board game group. So what are we going to do? I've been off six thousand miles. Oh, we'll figure something. <laughs> and then he called up and, well, contacted us via Facebook. So we should do this thing. Um, and he told us about Roll Twenty, and I've been DMing it through that, and it's just amazing. It's, you it's can, a great talk. You can do fog of war with it. It's just fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever to do fog of war in a DM. Like, no, you can't see that yet. No, you only see this bit. <laughs> uh, it's a bit awkward when you get dwarves and um, humans in a cave. Like, well, he can see that, but you can't. <laughs> So he's just telling you what you can see. So, um, and they had, yeah. So, yeah, I, I've been really enjoying. How is that campaign go? How did that go? Was it fun? Did they do it? A- oh, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's uh, very, very fast. The combats and such can just kind of, you have capabilities of doing a fair amount of damage compared to the. Uh, health of the uh, monsters and so on. So you can just bang them out and move through the next thing very quickly. Yeah, uh, I've, I've uh, found ballots. I mean, I'm actually running another campaign as well, face-to-face this one, but that's with Dragon Age. Um, sorry, competing product, sorry. Uh, but that's the Dragon Age RPG. It's a lovely system because only, it's 3D6. It's so quick and easy. There's hardly any maths at all. It's like, just roll those and it gets really done really quickly. But uh, it's very comp- it's a very compact game because there's not a lot of races involved and... It's not, you know, it's so it's a very defined world environment, which is its strength and weakness. Um, I'm sure you find that when you're making RPGs. That oh yes, yeah, so you've <laughs> always got that trade. And yeah, since we've got a strong inge- computer engineering group that uh, we play, where our rules are heavily algorithmic, and 
we strive to always trim that back so that the experience yes. on the tabletop is <laughs> yes, we're not we're not doing double integration here no no, no. no. <laughs> yeah i get that big tension between the uh sort of I, i'm sort of the heavy on the design so it's always you know does it make sense does it work and then we have the wonks going well if we add this little factor here and yeah. we put these other caveats here and oh and stop that stop it, stop it. <laughs> what about if we did log no 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 <laughs> <laughs> What's embarrassing is I know what all these terms mean. I've done it myself. It doesn't make any difference. It's not not in my games. No, no. At work, maybe, but not no. So, uh, any uh, competing like competitor con- contemporary RPGs because they've massive renaissance as you said earlier in the show. We said Shadowrun uh, making its return. You see, yeah, you know, but, Wasteland Two. Yeah, I played uh, the Shadowrun uh, first couple of ones. They- just did another Kickstarter for a different one, right. and uh, Wasteland I played uh, through, and a reasonable amount of Divinity. So uh, yeah, that's that's an amazing turnaround for that series because that was yeah <laughs> the earlier <laughs> games from that series yeah, but this the latest one it's astonishing. What it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It, yeah. it runs well. Um, the dynamic between the two characters amazing, amazing. And uh, it's not so much from Renaissance. This is a re, re- uh, not it's not from Renaissance at all. It's a rediscovery of why RPGs on these really stupidly powerful computers, which if you took back five years, maybe ten years ago, you'd be burnt as a witch for owning. That's right. It's just <laughs> if you I said to people, you know, if you have your phone, your smartphone in your hand, you took it back in time, you would be legitimately burnt. And, <laughs> what is that? Because honestly, ten years ago, the the iPhone didn't exist. Think right. Can't quite yeah, remember was, what that was like, but that was that was that was a place that happened. And like two six or two seven, yeah, something two, like that. Two thousand seven, yeah. 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 <laughs> so okay, well, now that's the end of the first half. Unless you want to talk about any other games you've been playing. I mean, I play a lot of uh, Cyclades. This is a board game, uh, fantastic uh, board game set in the ancient Greece. Uh, with an archipelago, it's lovely, lovely um, developed, and uh, it just recent expansion recently, and uh, Titans running around ancient Greece, smashing people up. It's fantastic. Oh, but, sweet! Uh, any, any, anything else you want to talk about? Yeah, oh, I've been I've been checking out Darkest Dungeon on Steam. I don't know if you've had a chance to yes, check that out. I saw that first at PAX about a year ago. Yeah. It might have been PAX East last year. Like I said, I do travel. And um, uh, that uh, fantastic game because it deals with <laughs> mental stress. That's right. Of characters, which I've never done on an RPG. And I think it's brilliant. Have you two any, ever delved or thought about doing that kind of thing? Or do you just think they're, all your characters are superheroes? Um, well, it's kind of got some of that Call of Cthulhu to yeah. it, right? With your yeah, that's usually where I see that with uh, horror games and such. Uh, I think it's yeah. a great mechanic as you're sort of building up. And uh, I haven't seen a cleric lose their faith. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> 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 that's not good. Just imagine. Did you just, did you just roll to check to see if you go insane? What? <laughs> I mean, this is the Cthulhu. I know, but <laughs> roll with me here. So, no, like I said, have you ever? You ever you ever considered having that, even a hint of that dynamic, you know, mental anguish? And I always look for ways to try to make the characters themselves, you know, seem like something more than, uh, you know, this is my gadget for opening doors. This is my gadget for drawing aggro, etc. So, yeah. I mean, uh, 
I like to do that sorts of things, but you know, there's always the attachment to characters. I mean, if you drive them off insane and you have to abandon them, then some people might be upset. Yes, <laughs> Chris, part of it. Part of it's a function of scope in that there's a lot of things we'd love to explore. Or we kick around internally, and then it becomes a matter of which things do we have as the core gameplay. So when we look at cool things like sanity checks or morale, we just have to make sure that if we're making that choice, is that at the expense of some other feature that we're excited about, like our goal system? Yeah, exactly. And that's what every designer does. There's the good ones, you know, because you get feature creep and then nothing ever gets released and you know, start overproducing, <laughs> overpromising, underdelivering uh, horrible management phrases. So just use, sorry, everyone listening, but it's true. Uh, and, uh, the best designers understand the concept of less is more. And, uh, again, it's, it's a cliche, but it's a cliche because it's true. <laughs> and, Absolutely. You know, and uh, once you grasp that and embrace that, then you, you, and you keep on hold of that. And you need someone who's actually checking everyone else to make sure they keep on holding on to that. Because Darkest Dungeon, its core is the sanity check, is the mm-hmm. stress limits. Sure. That's, it's built around that. That's why it works. That's why it's so much fun uh, or in, the, in a very strange way. But like you said, that's not what you're about. You're not about to make another Darkest Dungeon. You just happen to be playing it, and there's a really cool mechanic in there, but there's maybe not something you'd want to take on wholesale. But there's some um, facets of it hinted at that maybe you could include. Maybe not so much the players, but you could do it to the creatures, for example. They could lose their minds. That would be quite fun. <laughs> 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 because you know the, the heroes have seen all sorts of weird stuff the creatures they're fighting they've just seen other creatures like themselves and they might just freak out about mere the sight of a you know paladin swinging a huge glowing uh, um shield like oh god <laughs> or whatever <laughs> deity they worship and go running off it's quite funny um so on that note let's move on to the second half of the show where we do talk about seven dragon saga question, the zero question, as in my preference there, um, to, to tell us about this game. What are you doing? What are you developing for us, hopefully? Um, we basically wanted to look back at what we found most interesting and exciting about the games from earlier on in our career and the ones that were going on at that time. And uh, So what we wanted is we like the detailed tactical combats able to build and design your whole party of characters. In this case, will be six characters. And, uh, you know, actually think about what's going on in, in, in the individual situation, uh, as opposed to sort of flying through and uh, clearing everything out. Then there's also just the ability to have this wide area to explore 
the uh, old strat map from the gold box games where you'd move along and something new would uh, occur and uh, you could react to that, discover new areas to explore. And uh, then we also wanted to take advantage of uh, the new technologies and our, you know, new styles of design that we've uh, been evolving over the years. And uh, so we wanted to bring some personality to the characters. We've, uh, given each of them the ability the players can choose goals for the characters to so that when they achieve certain elements in the game completing quests and such if it matches the that particular character it improves that character and uh we also wanted to start with characters being a much more powerful uh group as opposed to farmers with uh, rusty hatchets running from rats and so on so or attacking uh, rats again, again. It was a lot of nostalgia that there were some mechanics that currently weren't being made in in more recent RPGs. I mean, don't get me wrong, Bioware and the guys at Obsidian do these fantastic companion NPCs, and yet if I get stuck lugging around some thief that I don't want for the rest of the game because that's kind of my choice for that class, it, it was driving me mad. So we didn't want to create a dungeon crawl. Um, David and the rest of the team have constructed a really cool, unique, new East-West setting that we're excited about for a Seven Dragons saga, where you really can craft your characters to fit the campaign and fit your playstyle. There isn't one straight way to play the game. Which is what you do in pen and paper. Yep. You know, it's exactly. what you do. Because <laughs> exactly. there's that freedom. It's just like, well, as a, you know, a person who's a good DM, you know, that you let... You don't DM players. You don't force them down a line unless they do something really stupid. Uh, and then you just try to protect them from their own stupidity. But to 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 build up a character, to actually mould them... I mean, I have a friend of mine who loves playing rogues. He's not the single-minded... Like, he, he can play other characters, but he adores playing rogues because it just fits his person. He fits his his personality. So he sort of projects. He creates an ex- like a, a exaggerated version of himself. And it's fine. It's a persona, sure. Yeah, and you know, and it's just like, just intensely annoying. It's like, ah, he just does stuff, and uh, he's always like, oh, I'm gonna go down here. No, (laughs) (laughs) you're spitting the party, you know. No, no, well, I might be, you know. So that's great. So like I said, you're we haven't explored the fact that you're about to launch this as a Kickstarter, aren't you? It's correct. Yeah, coming out very soon. Yes, um, at the time of recording. Imminently, <laughs> yeah, um, indeed. Twenty-four hours. Fingers crossed for you. Uh, it is. It is a, a tempestuous, tempestuous place. In that, uh, there's some campaigns have succeeded, and some have, yeah, not so much. Um, I won't mention any names, but you know, Peter Molyneux. Um, but it's 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 uh, for the most part, I've found that the RPGs have been phenomenally successful, as we've already seen too. So we mentioned, um, and uh, hopefully you'll follow on in those those coattails because there's a lot of affection to those to those games back uh, back in the '90s, which we mentioned. Now, you've already mentioned that Seven Dragon Saga. This is my first detailed design question, so bear with me. Is based on, as you said, the pen and paper RPG which you developed yourself. Mm-hmm. How transparent were the mechanics of that game? be present in a digital version? Um, well, I said we have the advantage of essentially starting out with uh, 
our creators of this uh, paper and pencil, you know, basically come from the computer games industry and by and large are engineers. So uh, because it's got a fairly good set of uh, algorithms, very much focused on uh, damage rates and uh, capabilities and and on the technical side, uh, a lot of that is just sliding in. And then it's a matter of as we uh, get the rest of the body of the game around it, then to see what is too subtle to be noticed uh, on the computer versus, um, you know, on the tabletop. So we we'll, may tweak the the numbers at that point just to make the feel. Uh, the pace of the games will be different. The fact that single uh, a player is running the six characters as opposed to six players running a character each. Right. And so so uh, we expect to see some variations on that. But the uh, core rule set, um, its balance of points and so on, should uh, come across pretty well. Okay, because I mean, you can degenerate into a maths problem sometimes with RPGs. Mm. Um, <laughs> turns into a spreadsheet. Um, um, World, of War, World of Warcraft suffers from that. I'm, I'm going to say it. You know, no, and Blizzard admits it as well. It's like, oh yeah, there's this spreadsheet versus the other spreadsheet, and you press some buttons, and that alters the numbers in that spreadsheet. And then if it's better than the other spreadsheet, then you win. If it's not, then you lose. Right. And you can see it. You can see it. I know people who, you know, min-max doesn't happen, that horrible phrase, but they did that. They just ran the numbers. They weren't playing a game. It was just like in the Matrix. All they could see was the code. Sure. And um, that's a terrible thing because, you know, as, as a pen and paper RPG, the, the mechanics of the game or the, that shouldn't get in the way of actually the role-play. It's a role-playing game. That's right. It's two words at the beginning and then there's a game. And that's what you're meant to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, with the computer, you have the advantage of all of the maths are uh, well shielded. You can simply bring up the fact that a die was rolled if you want to give that sort of feel to uh, that there are dice rolling and you're back at the table. Yeah. And again, Chris, we're we're lucky the team has so much experience working on past quality RPGs. You know, David's already done all this great work, and so has Paul on you know classics like Pool of Radiance, Curse of the Azure Bonds, um, the Dragonlance games, etc. Exactly. Um, Speaking of which, are you seeing his questions? And it's amazing. Um, The next one is really: you said you hail from the late eighties, early nineties era of RPG development. Uh, but that vanished for a period. It did. Um, uh, in, in actually, in the mid 90s. Uh, and then it returned again in a form. You may not agree, but it returned in a form via Baldur's Gate. It did. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Very much. That's yeah. certainly we the, agree. the touchstone of the, of the next section, definitely. Yeah, 98. I remember that, that year was incredible uh, for PC games. It was ridiculous. That was Half Life, that, mm-hmm. a few others. It was just ridiculous. Um, but what aspects of those gameplay mechanics from those from the uh, 80s and 90s are you going to retain? Because there were some, it was great. Some of it did well. But others, what others are you going to say, yeah, we're not going to, you know, we're going to discard that. We don't need to do that. That wasn't working. Can you pluck out some examples of what you would retain and what you'd actually say, yeah, maybe we shouldn't? Yeah, well, I mean, with that. you know, within the, you know, within the knitting of the game, obviously the combats are going to, uh, you know, be there and we're definitely looking at retaining that aspect of turn-based tactical choice, which, you know, we did within the gold box games and we're going to keep that uh, here in the new game. So, um, you know, so that's a matter of making sure that there's 
uh, a lot of choice in what kind of uh, weaponry, what kind of spells, uh, mobility versus um, defense versus offense, all of those sorts of choices, how you build your party. Uh, that said, uh, when we were using you know, the D&D rules, they're very specific to classes which had very much specific roles and you needed if you didn't have a cleric in your party well go back and roll one up uh, <laughs> <laughs> right whereas with um with seven dragon saga the um we're using a um, class race specialty system to allow you to quickly put together your characters but there's an underlying uh abilities point system that goes along with the whole game so that uh as you advance through the game, you'll be able to customize each of the characters and build them out toward, uh, you know, removing a particular weakness you see in your party or to, uh, you know, enhance further a particular strength that you want to see. So if you want to play with a particular strategy, uh, you have a lot of flexibility up front. And then as the game proceeds, you'll be able to push that harder and, uh, you know, essentially have a more uh, flexible experience right which again just the, the the there was some naivety about some design decisions early on because you didn't know you know now oh, yeah. 20 years later it's like wow if only we knew <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a great idea sadly it happened in 2007 not you know back then and it's it's just wonderful to see games evolving over time and you know i was about to say one of the things i was going to throw in there is, is like this game is not skyrim no, there's anything wrong with that uh, but Skyrim is a very different experience. It is an RPG of sorts. Let's say of sorts. Of course it is. But well, it's just so. you uh, rather than you controlling six characters. It's just you and your overpowered self. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, number of opportunities to overpower yourself in Skyrim are innumerable. Yes. <laughs> I can now fly. That's right. You can now fly. Well done. Um, anyway, now... Uh, the next question I've got is penultimate one, so ramping down, sad face. Seven Dragon Saga has players start off at mid-level state, as you said earlier. Kind of a mid-level, maybe uh, six, seven, something like that. Trying yeah, to we're trying to do the equivalent of where they've uh, established themselves, and uh, the people in power will recognize and you know and say, okay, well, these guys have done something, and uh, we better watch out for them. So rather than have the rusty sword wielding novices, you've had these these uh, people who don't have rusty swords. They have actual you know swords that are reasonably long and well balanced, and actually got maybe plus one or two on them. And found found them in some dungeon they explored when they were wielding rusty swords. Um, why? Uh, explain well, to me, but I want to. I mean, it, it, yeah. from a from a game design point, it is a bit of a risk because the. Uh, Nice thing about starting out as uh, a wimp is you can narrow down the choices that the players have so they can learn this piece, then you expand it to this piece. And also you get the, oh, you got a level here. Oh, five minutes later, hop, now's your second one. And, uh, <laughs> Immediate gratification. on my game, now we'll spread the levels out and your characters yeah. aren't going to change much. And, uh, you know, I mean, there's very good reasons for it for psychology, but uh, – we wanted to approach it from sort of a different way that uh, sort of how uh, we've essentially been doing our tabletop role-playing games for quite a while, which is uh, how is, what is you, what is the use of power for the characters? So the motivations of the players and, and how they can 
deal with the storyline and such from a position of uh, you are uh, definitely have the fulcrum and you can push the world in the directions that you want. Well, maybe with some unexpected consequences, but uh. <laughs> yes, I, I do find myself saying as a DM, "Okay, you've dinged. I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Just to add to David's point, really, uh, a lot of games use the early levels as your tutorial, teaching you the mechanics. Um, in some cases, that's fun. In some cases, it's less fun, and you're still waiting to get to the meaty bits. Mm. In our case, it's kind of like completing boot camp already. Your characters aren't overpowered or starting too strong. There's still plenty of learning curve or ability to grow, but you're not starting out with four hit points. No. They're yeah. competent. Mm, they're that's competent. Right. They're representing a um, an empire, so they've got political connections uh, as they're coming in. So, uh, are they a company? Oh, uh, yeah, essentially, they're um, the idea is that the characters come from throughout this sprawling empire. There, um, there's an ability called chaos that people can be touched with it and they become much more powerful than the people around them uh sort of a little bit of the x-men mutant type of uh uh theme switched over to fantasy but uh so the um, the empire likes to try to acquire them from wherever they are and also whether they're from um you know a backwoods jungle or uh whether they're surly dwarves or uh imperial citizens they bring them all together and, you know, form them into groups that they can send out to, uh, solve problems that, uh, when they need just something to cut through all of the niceties. And so that's who our characters are from their, their storyline. So they have whatever personalities and such they need. They've simply been, uh, granted powers to resolve the, uh, situations as they see fit and how they see fit is sort of, how the whole storyline of the game is going to evolve. What's the Again, that's why some of your characters have different motivations or different goals. Right. So what state is the Empire in? Is it an Ascendance? Is it... Uh, It's um, reached um, a tipping point to some extent. The... um, They've been successful for quite a while, and so the internal divisions are boiling to some extent. The Emperor has power but he has to essentially work through the imperial houses to administer this sprawling place and so at some places these houses are at odds with one another and the communications lines are so long that he can't really the emperor can't really you know say okay well that's going to be that way and that's going to be that way because it all gets twisted in the end and so when something seems to be reaching a crisis he sends his specialists in and says (laughs) Okay. These guys are causing me trouble. Solve it for me. Fix it, yeah. <laughs> so, Be nice or not. Yeah. <laughs> just, get it, just get it done. It's definitely a case of handing over a bag of gold half full. Like, what's the half? Other half full. You get paid when you're done. Exactly. Yeah. So, my last question then. Gateway. Let's talk about that. Sure. Uh, it's an initi- initiative. That allows players to transfer their characters from one game to another. Uh, now, my question is, and like, how does this work? How does this work between games with vastly different settings? 
Well, let me well, let me give you a little context before I let David talk about for the fun design aspects. Really, in looking back at the old games that we were touching on earlier, you know, whether that's Wizardry or Ultima or Bard's Tale, back in the early RPGs, almost all of them allowed for import-export. Just like your character sheet when you're playing pen and paper, mm-hmm. you had the ability to take your party and be able to put them in a new game. And uh, I think it's really publishers that started to kind of lock that down or frown on allowing the audience to tap into a new game or, or have a built-in um, customer that was ready to dive into a new RPG. They kind of, in the early days, needed to leverage the number of people that played computer games or played yeah. D&D because yeah. it was so niche. Now, in our case, we were able to harken back to those retro roots and also take advantage of open data and how supportive the development community is and reach out and say, hey, guys, when you've got a, a group of characters, is there a reason they shouldn't be allowed to continue? And that's where I started kicking the idea around with David and the team about what that might look like. And then I'll let David talk about um, some of the aspects of balance or why we thought it was important. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So um, at its heart, Gateway creates essentially a universal character sheet. Right. Um, and what it does is it takes... Each per, each game that wants to uh, involve itself in Gateway mm-hmm. provides an export file, which essentially says, this is what our characters look like, and this is how you turn it into the standardized character sheet. And then they also provide one saying, well, if you look at a standardized character sheet, this is what our this is how you how you turn it into one of our characters. So from that basic theme, uh, each developer has a choice of exactly what they want to bring in from another game. So, uh, like in the case of uh, Torment, um, they were very supportive of the idea, but they pointed out that their character is a very specific um, creature with its whole backstory, which you could uh, look it up on on their site. So, uh, they were happy to let us export it, so they'll provide us an export file, but they're not actually going to import anything. Right. Uh, and so other ones may decide that, okay, uh, we don't know what this class is and so on, so we're simply going to bring in your, your basic description, your age, your race, etc. Mm-hmm. And others may want to spend some more time on... Uh, the gateway allows you to also customize based on character, based on player response. So you could say, "Okay, well, you have a hacker. Uh, we have fighters and wizards. Which one would you like your character to be in this game?" So um, it's all a matter of how much that character sort of alters as he steps through the gateway and into a new uh, world. Obviously, in some cases, he's going to come through more or less intact. In others, he's sort of you know, go to have his brain hacked. Um, yeah, <laughs> because I was just thinking you've got this uh, hulking space marine with a you know yeah. a heavy bolter or something, and then he gets transferred into into well, uh, Seven Dragon Saga, and he's no longer his heavy weapon. He's you know he's he was great at firing rockets and stuff, but there's no rockets to fire. Right. What do you do with that? And I was just I was just curious about how he can make. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm sure it can like, be done. That's... You know, we'd say okay, well, what's a we don't recognize the marine class. So we'll ask the character to uh, ask the player to sort of customize his character, mm. uh, essentially within our, you know, and how recognizable it ends up balancing. You know, we'll be able to see that he's got you know 
really high strength and, and such, so we could transfer that to the high end be, of strength charts and so it'll on. It would be akin to a knight, not a warrior, but more like a knight. Right, yeah, we have a knight class, and so yeah, you have the armored, yeah. uh, works with uh, two-headed weapons. and yeah. uh, Some honor there, some code. There you go. What we do, Chris, is we leave it up to the developers themselves to also make those decisions. What Gateway does is it makes a recommendation, and then a user actually gets to approve or say, yes, that's what I had in mind or what I want, or maybe it's this other subclass or this other choice over here. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, so essentially it allows, you know, a fair amount of customization lets the player, you know, sort of shape it so that it still resolves as something that he recognizes as the previous character. Um, and we've already had, uh, since our recent announcement, we've had other independents um, come to us saying, well, if I had access to Gateway, like in this case, it's a game that uh, the player plays a, a great monstrous presence and you know tries to take over the world. So I said, could somebody bring in their characters into my game and use them as the villains and NPCs in there? And, uh, you know, we're still working out the details, but we see no problem with uh, essentially bringing Gateway out so that other developers could come up with, you know, just innovative ideas. Hey, there's this access to these characters. What can I do with them? Yeah, I mean, you could have the – there's a couple of dungeon um, simulators, not Dungeon Keeper, but games right. like that. And you could actually have the heroes from <laughs> so yeah. Saga just Absolutely. dropped into that dungeon and go, okay, deal with that. Absolutely. No, we're really excited about that stuff, Chris. It's about uh, how could we empower other developers to make use of this data or do fun things with it? Yeah, because it's user-created, which is you and I know. It's extremely powerful because humans are horrible and great at the same time. <laughs> yes. And they do, they do things no computer could ever dream up, no amount of exactly. randomization or combo. Would, there's nothing more devious than another human being, and we all know that. Um, yep. So cool. Well, it's coming out on the Windows PC, right? Is that you're aiming yep. for? And then you're going to um, maybe yep, stretch goal yep. it for Mac and Linux and stuff like that, maybe? Is yeah, that exactly. Idea? Yeah, we're thinking about bringing it to Macs and Linux afterwards, or maybe it, it's simultaneous release, depending on you know exactly how the Kickstarter goes. And then we'll evaluate other platforms as uh, you know. We are, get to release. What are you making it on? I'm not going to too much detail. We're building in Unity, so we have options to. Uh, go to a fair number of other platforms, but uh, I want to keep it uh, straightforward so that we can have an optimal uh, user inter- interface so that, uh, you know, if you bring it out on console and mobile and such, uh, yeah, it can often be compromises in exactly how. Well, it, many, many developers farm that out. Like, hey, someone else do it. <laughs> no, we're, we're excited about building what we want to build, but at the same time, Kickstarter allows us to communicate directly with our core audience, yes. and we're really looking forward to that feedback. And is there going to be a cloth map? <laughs> yes. It's, uh, there, it well, will be a, well said. there will be a physical map. There will uh, be the option to have a code wheel as well, because that was a big <laughs> yeah. difference in our um, original gold box game. We, so. Yeah, back in the day, it wasn't called DRM, but that's what it is. Uh, that's right. An analog we version of DRM. DRM. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but people asked for it, Chris, on our forums. People yeah. came to us asking for this stuff. It's like, yeah, but so we'll, it's, you know. It's, blue book, all the sort of accoutrements to the yeah, old game. Accoutrements, yeah, it's just this, what, what, what do you, that's one of the things, all the stuff. So that's, what, that's why Infocom games are so, you know, 
pillory. This is like, oh my god, this is amazing. Yeah. They had all this stuff. Like, yeah. <laughs> I still, I still remember the Hitchhiker's Got Two Galaxy on. And oh yeah. <sighs> Let's try to get a babel fish. Like, no, that's not going to work, is it? Anyway, <laughs> gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I wish you the very, very best of luck in your Kickstarter campaign. Uh, hopefully, this will spur people on, and uh, I will be linking it on Twitter when it's released. Uh, the show that is, uh, of course, as always, do. And um, yeah. Um, Hopefully, um, when it's all done, maybe you can come back and we talk about it uh, again, but in a more concrete way because it'll be out there and finished and like, you know, as a as a thing rather than a, an idea. Uh, I'm sure you've done some stuff and demos, and otherwise you wouldn't be talking to me now. But you know, when when is you projecting? 2016. Yep, we're looking That's right. at a release in 2016. Still sounds like the future, but <laughs> <laughs> it comes actually, far too soon. <laughs> actually living in it. So, uh, like I said, thank you very much for you both and, and your time, and uh, we do Thanks. wish you the best of luck. Thanks. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. Enjoyed it. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also don't forget listen to us on Stitcher dot com. So just go to Stitcher dot com, and you can stream the show from there you just look up the sausage factory and you can find us that'd be great you can follow me on twitter at chris o'regan no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com hi hi